0: Shalom, You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 201. My name is Aral ben Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Uh, Thank you, Father, for bringing us together to um, study your words and to equip ourselves as your ambassadors in this world. We thank you for um, sending your Son to do the impossible, and the work that he did on the cross is a finished work. And so we um, rejoice in that. And we uh, revel in that, and we are going to rally around that um, cause and um, uh, build our lives upon uh, that particular finished work. We thank you for sending here your Holy Spirit as well to allow us to um, and to cause us to uh, live and lead lives that are holy and pleasing to you, to turn from sin, to continue to pursue righteousness, and to uh, forgive one another when we're wronged and uh, and when we wrong others. Um, help us to continue to uh, grow up in the words and the ways of Messiah. Um, he is the perfect model and example uh, that was uh, left for us to follow. And so we have no questions when it comes to how can we walk out obedience? What can we do that is pleasing to God? We simply need to um, read your words, um Allow the power of the Holy Spirit to to motivate us and to move us and to to uh, generate um, uh, the right perspective within us, and then um, we've got Yeshua, right, and the apostles, really. But Yeshua, he's he's the the um, quintessential quintessential example of of um, walking in holiness, and so let's continue to um, uh, imitate him. And so, thank you, Lord, for these studies. They are um, challenging, and they are. Um, a time for us to get together and to um, to reflect on the things that we've learned and to and to put them into practice. So, bless us during these um, difficult times. Protect us. Help us to realize that you're still guiding us and leading us, even despite the fact that uh, things look dark and grim at times. Uh, and um, thank you for this time of Hanukkah, this season that we're in, and all of the um, uh, themes and. Um, details that in it, it, it involves we'll be careful Lord to give you the praise and glory bashim yeshua amen all right thank you everyone for joining me for these live internet studies as i mentioned uh, during the prayer my name is arlobin Lyman hanavi and this is segment 1 a 30 minute segment of 2 hour long studies you're welcome to join us via skype uh, if you're live if if you're listening to this live right now um, go over to my website at um, and and click on the the banner right at the very, very top that says Live Internet Studies, and then scroll down a bit into the page and click on the blue banner that says Skype, and it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a, a desktop or laptop or computer. Jump into the live study with us right now. That would be great. Otherwise, if you're listening to this recording after the fact, uploaded to YouTube or an iTunes podcast or something like that, well, then you now you know for next time, okay? Speaking of next time, today is, according to this recording, is um december 17th 2022 it's saturday evening late afternoon uh 5 p.m to 6 p.m is when we meet and we are meeting tonight obviously but we're not meeting next week let me um just pull up a calendar real quick to show you we are not meeting on um december the 24th because that's the um uh we'll be well into hanukkah by then but it's also christmas eve um And then we're not meeting on the December 31st, which is the final uh, day of the new year. Uh, Obviously, that's New Year's Eve. So um, I don't want you uh, having to take your time uh, away from your family and your uh, friends to meet with me. Um, Go ahead and um, take a break. We'll consider this like a two-week vacation. And then we'll be fresh and ready to jump into the brand new year, 2023, uh, January 7th. uh, live study and we have brand new topics that we're going to be wa- uh, in fact uh, depending on um, what uh, um, logistics work themselves out we're either going to be embarking on a topic of um, looking at Tim heg's fellow heirs book which is a great uh, topic to research or to, to to study through I can promise you that or we will be going through um uh one of my own studies uh that I've written on my commentary on my website and uh we'll be creating a, a study out of that or and or um we also I'm planning on uh, barking on the new um I, 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 we're going to be refuting um biblical unitarianism uh they have a website uh, biblicalunitarianism.org i believe it's called and um they have verses that s- supposedly refute trinitarian theology and so I'd like to go through all those verses and refute their refutation of refuting trinitarian theology. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. All that's for next year. So that's kind of like a preview or I mean a um an advertisement to to come and join the live studies and keep going with us into the new year. All right, let's jump into the night study. Part or a segment 1 is the um was a study on Matthew 9:14 through 17 and as you know last week we have basically um been it wrapped up the entire Official live study, the official um, uh, uh, version that's written on my uh, website, which you can find again at com. If you look on your screen now, the, I just have the verse, um, the passage uh, list showing the, out of the ESV where we actually took the study from. And there's nothing really in there that talks about, you know, Jesus replacing the old system with the new system. But if you go and read various commentaries and Bible um, thoughts and uh, uh, interpretations of the passage, you'll find that many Christian, in fact, as far as I can survey, most Christian um, uh, interpretations of this passage give something along long lines of um, this is uh, the parables indicate that Jesus is uh, bringing something radically new that's incompatible with the old. So we titled the study our Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another you can see my screen now this is actually the lives the um the written study that i wrote it's available on my website All right, an examination of matthew 9 14 through 17 are judaism and christianity incompatible with one another and we determined that the answer to the question is no they're not incompatible with one another <laughs> right real simple and basically it was a study about replacement theology um and you're not not familiar with what replacement theology is that basically a a system of thought in christian circles that Port's the idea that Jesus has come to replace the old system of Judaism and the law of Moses with a new system of the law of Christ and um, new covenant, and so it gives rise to this idea that in Christianity it's fond, you're, it's it's uh, uh, popular to teach that we're no longer under the law of Moses, we're under the law of Christ. We're not obligated to keep the Law of Moses, it's been done away with, it's been fulfilled, it's been relaxed, it's been set aside, um, it's been relegated to a different dispensation or something to that effect. Um, we're no longer under the Old Covenant, we're under the New Covenant, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the um, topics that we talked about in the study. What I want to do tonight is um, kind of just have an open discussion, dialogue. If I get enough people to jump into the live study, I'll actually even open up the microphones and go like go in that direction, but until then you'll just get it. It'll be a monologue for me. And what I want to talk about is I want to borrow some notes from Dr. David Stern's late Dr. Stern's um, Messianic Jewish manifesto. I'll flash a little picture of his um, book on the screen for you right now. Red, bright red cover. And he's got some notes in there. That I think that were relevant. Mostly the book was written to Messianic Jews to kind of rally them into action. Uh, Dr. Stern is a Messianic Jew, was a Messianic Jew. I say was since he just passed away this year, um, just maybe a few months ago. Um, I mean, he died a believing Jew, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I say he was a Messina Jew. I'm saying that um, he is a Jew who believes in Jesus, but also believes that the Torah is relevant for not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles. And so if you pick up any of his um, Bibles, like complete Jewish Bible or Jewish New Testament or his commentary, Jewish New Testament commentary, or the, the Messina Jewish Manifesto book that we're going to be looking at, you're going to walk away with the perspective that he believes first and foremost that the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, is a book for Jews. It was written by Jews, is written for Jews, and its central figure is a Jew. That just makes common sense. But he also challenges um, Gentile Christians to understand that messing at Judaism has a place at the table and that brings something valuable to offer when it comes to talking about this idea of, is the law of God still relevant for Gentile Christians? He's going to say, yes, it is. And you don't have to convert to Judaism to follow it. You don't have to become a Jew, that is to say, to follow after the Torah and I realize that, and he does, that there are a lot of objections to uh, bringing in a messianic Judaism in, in in alongside of a historic Christianity. But let's, let's talk about some of those um, objections and challenges. I have a um, book notes uh, version of his Messianic Jewish Manifesto that I created. Um, quite some time ago, almost 20 years ago, and it was um, with the purpose of kind of skimming through the book and lifting significant quotes for the purpose of a um, an academic study. And so now let me borrow some of those notes. It's not they they are um, a, a lifted quotes from the book, but I'm not just going to read the whole book. Instead, I'll just read certain segments. So if you look on my screen right now, on page 13 he has a um, a paragraph entitled, and this is in chapter uh, 2, entitled Identity. He has a a, a paragraph heading entitled Gentile Christian Opposition. And so it's common in my uh, line of work to run into Gentile Christians who are opposed to any type of either Messianic Judaism being purported or particularly talking about should we be keeping the Torah as Christians. And so first I want to talk about uh, from looking through the lens of a Messianic Jew, which I myself am also a Messianic Jew, so I'm going to always kind of present a perspective that is in favor of not only expressing my Jewishness as a Jewish believer, but also a, a, an opinion that bleeds over into expressing my um, Torah obedience as a, a Christian, and I believe that that uh, carries over into what Christians can do. So first, I want to look at Dr. Stern's um, book here, and look at some, just some details in chapter two under, um, uh, what I say, it's uh, uh, chapter two, identity, Gentile Christian opposition. Here's some uh, relevant information that I found um, important as I'm studying through this particular topic about Judaism v. Christianity, the relevance of Torah observance, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, uh, oppositions to this idea, um, bringing in Messianic Judaism alongside of Christianity, how where does it fit in, um, what what can we expect if Jewish people are to embrace Jesus and continue to uh, embrace Torah as well, what would that look like? So these are some of the topics we're going to talk about in this next 30 minutes. Uh, Dr. Stern says, quote, some churches try to assimilate us. He's speaking as a Messianic Jew. They try to assimilate us to Gentile ways, denying our right to express our Jewishness. And this is done often under the banner of eliminating, quote, unquote, the middle wall of partition and, quote, between Jews and Gentiles, which has been broken down by Yeshua, the Messiah. As I interject, it is true that the middle wall has been broken down. Right. I even have a whole little video on it. Maybe I'll flash a little um thumbnail and show you the video and then a link in the upper right corner of the youtube but it's available on my youtube channel um i don't believe that the middle wall that uh, paul is talking about in the book of um ephesians is um the torah right the torah was never designed to be a middle wall partition between one um culturally expressive segment of christianity and another right in other words between the jewish messian jews and the uh, gentile christians the the torah was never designed to separate peoples in in fact it's the opposite the torah is a, a document that's meant to unify everyone under the banner of the one true god of israel which um explains who the one true messiah of israel is which of course is the god of all jews and gentiles and the messiah of all jews and gentiles so the torah is that covenant document that uh, outlines the stipulations of God's people, explains how to lead lead and live holy lives. It um, defines not only sin, but it also defines holiness. And of course, if sin and holiness are universal to God and God's people as the Jews, then it only stands to reason, deductively, that the same standard should apply Uh, to gentile christians of course we're going to look at some pushbacks to that notion dr stern continues he says other churches regard us speaking of us messing with jews they regard us as extra special either as weird not quite christians or super christians doubly blessed and i pulled this quote into my study in the latter case when we talk about doubly blessed we're put on display we are requested to give our testimony every other week in any question about the old testament is immediately referred to our Jewish Christian. In short, he says we become the church's token Jew. Right? We become uh, um, our Jewishness becomes a cause celebre. And more to the point, here it gets defined not by ourselves but by Gentiles around us. So, um, this these are some of the um, kind of um, uh, you might call um, anxieties that we Messianic Jews go through. Obviously, historic Christians don't perhaps. Identify with that, but I wanted you to understand that we Messianic Jews experience these things sometimes as we attend churches, or we don't experience it so much as we attend a Messianic, a flavored congregation. But we certainly go through when we experience. Um, uh, not all the time. Not all Jews do, by the way. And Dr. Stern is not trying to say that everyone experiences that, but some of us do. Um, and so it's helpful to understand where we, uh, where where we're kind of. Uh, It's kind of wiggling in the seat as to why. Some in the church argue that Messianic Judaism is wrong. Um, You've probably heard this fairly predominantly in many Christian circles. Uh, Here are six reasons that Dr. Stern has heard. And so we've got these A through F. He says, uh, point A, separatism, rebuilding the Middle Wall partition. Again, many historic Christians believe That to bring in a Torah observance alongside of your faith in Jesus raises that middle wall of partition. Which means for them, um, Jewish expressions of Christianity or Torah observant lifestyle or those that are leaning towards Hebraic lifestyle is an unnecessary step backwards in the wrong direction. And it's an unnecessary wall of partition because it's largely understood and even kind of agreed upon that most people in Gentile and historic Gentile Christianity are not really interested in keeping the lifestyle that looks on the outward uh, looks on the outside like uh, a, some form of Judaism. And what I mean by that are the visible what we might call badges of Christian of Judaism that have kind of um, Carried, been carried along all through the centuries of Jewish history. So we've got some of the things like, say, um, male circumcision for infants, infant circumcision, or even adult circumcision, but male circumcision. That's one of the badges of Judaism. Uh, badges are meant to, by the way, I'm using that analogy, because a badge, when you look at a uniform or an, an outfit, a badge is something that's worn on the outf- outside of the uniform or the outfit, article of clothing, and it's meant to identify kind of that person um, along with a group or an ideal or a concept or even a position, right? A, a police wears a uniform and he's got a badge of authority that says he's in a position to kind of exercise this function and role in society. We're not trying to say that the Messianic Jews are, are, are religious police or something to that effect when I use the word badge. I'm just trying to say it's it's a visible Symbol that can be seen on the outside by everyone around, both in the community and outside of the community. They instantly see the badge, and they they're meant to understand either some of its unique uh, roles and functions, or um, it kind of marks the person out as belonging to a group. At, at the very least, that's what it does. So um, many within Gentile Christian historic Gentile interpretations of the Ephesians passage, where Paul talks about the middle wall, interpret that middle wall of separation as the Torah. I again, I disagree but they believe that that is the middle wall that's being uh, re-constructed um, by Christians and Gentile Jews, who, uh, not Jews, but Gentiles. Uh, let's try that one again. They believe that anyone who kind of champions a Torah-observant lifestyle, such as Messianic Jews like myself or Gentile Christians who are embracing the Hebraic lifestyle, um, they believe that's the middle wall of partition that Paul told us has been broken down. Just FYI, what do I think the Middle Wall of Perdition is? I think it was the vile man-made um, uh, dogmas and man-made laws and halakhas, uh, halakhot, um uh policies, uh, group policies that were entrenched in place by Yeshua's day that were kind of erected by the historic Jewish people to keep Gentiles outside of their local groups, keep them at arm's length. And... Um, it was a misuse of Torah, kind of a nationalization of Torah, a restricted view of the Torah of God uh, for Jews only in that respect. And so when Jesus came, he came to explain that, no, the middle wall of covenant membership is not restricted to Jewish only people. God is not the God of the Jews only, Paul went on to say in Romans chapter 2. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, near the very end of the chapter there. Um, Is he the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of Jews and Gentiles. As we agree, heroes are the Lord our God, the Lord we Jews and Gentiles, the Lord our God is one God of Jews and Gentiles. If I can uh, give my kind of a different spin on the on the uh, Shema. Point B, Dr. Stern says, um, some that argue that Messianic Judaism is wrong. He says, they say that no, uh, we're no longer Jews, but Christians, right? So you Messianic Jews, you're not Jewish anymore. Per se, that's not your primary identity. You should celebrate your life as a Christian, and so don't worry about all those Jewish-flavored um, uh, lifestyle um, identifiers, badges, uh, you know, historical indicators, things like that. But again, that's to strip a Jew of his own history. And I, as I talked about in my study, um, for many religious Jews, this is uh, an impassable task, an impossible task, and impassable as well. It's not some um, That they can really even consider approaching a Christianity that loses all of their all of its Jewish flavor and Jewish relevance is something that they don't want to um, even consider. Yeah, so um, I think that this is an important topic. Not just for Messianic Jews, but important for Christians to consider that when they're asking Messianic Jews or Jewish believers to give up their Jewishness or stop being Torah observant because of all the complications that that the Messianic, that the uh, Gentile Christian believes it creates, that they don't stop and consider what the impact that it's having to the Messianic Jew, particularly the religious Jew who's been raised as a Jew his whole life and doesn't separate um uh, biblical lifestyle from his own Jewish lifestyle. They, those two are intertwined. They overlap. They are conflated with one another on purpose. So, uh, section, or uh, point three, pride in Jewishness. Uh, invidious comparison with Gentile believers. Um, this is an issue that can be a problem. Um, some Jewish people uh, take so much pride in their Jewish identity that it, um it 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 overshadows their uh their new life in messiah and so they kind of celebrate jewishness over and above christianity or over and above their their, what that means to be a christian um and so in that sense they they end up being wrong-minded strong-headed um prideful in their jewishness and even to the point where they um compare themselves negatively against or kind of presumptuously against uh, gentile believers which again The solution to that is to realize that we Jews and Gentiles are both equal in Messiah. We approach the problem the same way, we're both equal sinners when it came to me in being in need of a messiah therefore the solution is the same we're both equally recipients of god's grace and so we don't have any room for judgmental attitudes of of um hey i'm better than you i'm god's chosen you're not uh you know god chose the jews not you or any of that um you know i'm the people of the book you're not we don't have any room for all, all that pride and jewishness in the wrong manner i mean we can be proud as jews but not in the wrong you guys already know that pride the word pride and being proud can be either a positive thing or a negative thing we're trying to avoid the negative one uh point d heretical overemphasis on judaism um this one is similar to being to being having a pride in jewishness from the ethnic perspective but an overemphasis on judaism takes it into the realm of religion and religious practice where there's the overemphasis on religious uh jewish um, uh, writings and teachings and um, halacha from the sages, an overemphasis on Talmud, uh, Mishnah, Gemara, all of the rabbinic writings, the rabbinic uh, teachings, an overemphasis on um, Judaism as a program, um, so that it uh, again it, it pushes. Uh, Gentile Christianity out of the picture. It doesn't see any room for Gentile Christianity. Again, all of this would be wrongheaded and would be unnecessary in a Messianic Judaism that embraces uh, the the Gentile Christian side of the house and vice versa. So we're talking about incorporating Messianic Judaism and Gentile Christianity and and making us understand that we're one new man, drawing from the Ephesians 2 passage that Paul wrote about again. We are one new man and Messiah. This doesn't mean we erase our distinctives, but it means we learn to um, work together with one another to build up the kingdom of God and to honor God and to present a Messiah to the world that's equally the Messiah of Jew and Gentile. And then lastly in point, um, uh, I'm sorry, not lastly, uh, point E, Judaizing, Judaizing. Um, we don't want to be guilty of forcing Gentiles into a place where they have to feel like they have to embrace a Jewish lifestyle or Jewish identity. Uh, we certainly are, we, missing of Jews, are certainly and should be, certainly be against forced conversions or even coercive conversions where we are trying to make Gentiles believe that their ethnic identity is incomplete or lacking in some way. Remember, in the first century, this is likely one of the primary hurdles that Paul had to um, deal with and problems that he deal with because of the the strong nationalism in his day. The push to make Gentiles become Jewish in their ethnic uh, uh, identity, in their legal uh, position in society, so that they can then embrace the Torah and uh, lead a a life of... um, of, uh, of uh, covenant membership. In other words, from the perspective of many in the first century, certainly not all, but uh, if if history is any indicator, not just um, a non-Jewish history, but Jewish history, then it seems like um, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism and nationalism, this idea that, that the Torah is a document for Jews only, was very strong in the first century. And so that's what we're talking about, Judaizing, um, turning Gentiles into Jews, uh, one word on one note on this word Judaizing I know it's popularly taught in Christian circles that Judaizing is equal to keeping Torah telling jewish uh, Gentiles that you need to keep Torah is identified and um uh interpreted by many jewish uh, i'm sorry by many gentile christians as judaizing so for instance if i am invited to a standard christian church a baptist church for an example and i show up looking like a messianic jew right i've got my kippah i've got my um tzitzit i've got my um jewish outfit on if you want to call it that jewish looking garment and um I show up, and I'm invited to speak, and I speak on the topic of Torah observance, and from the pulpit, I'm telling these Gentile Christians, hey, guess what? The Torah is not a Torah for Jews only. The law of Moses has not been done away with replacement theology is wrong, and Gentiles are, in in fact, empowered and covenantally bound, just like we Jews, to keep Torah. Uh, Are you you, um, divinely invited to keep it? Yeah, that is part of the uh, answer. You are divinely invited by God to keep it, but it's more than that. You are actually covenant-bound because you are a true covenant member if you believe in Jesus. So hop on in and, and you know jump in the river and get wet with the rest of us uh, Messianic Jews. And let's just start keeping Torah together without distinction between who's a Jew and who's a Gentile um, to say, well, the Torah, this part's for us, but this part's not for you, et cetera, et cetera. Well, many within Christian circles might say that what I'm doing is I'm Judaizing from the pulpit. I'm teaching these Gentiles that they need to keep Torah um, notice I didn't say that they need to keep Torah. I'm simply saying that we should be keeping Torah. Um, for what purpose? For the purpose of pleasing God, for the purpose of being expressing covenant um, loyalty, for the purpose of um, walking in holiness and matters of sanctification. Should we be keeping Torah for the purpose of salvation? Absolutely not. Never, never, never. The Torah is not a document that can save you. It never was. There aren't any ways to keep Torah to save you, so don't even try. So, And then the last point that Dr. Stern brings up in his book, here's uh, that um, uh, people argue that Messianic Judaism is artificial. It's not indigenous. Um, they argue that it's um, really the Bible is a, a Christian book, and that Messianic Judaism is something that's been kind of added, um, you know, on top of that. Um, but again, uh, without going into too many details, it's obvious to see that this is not true. And then let me jump down into chapter, um, I think it's chapter 4. I had some notes that I wanted to talk about as well, if I can accelerate this part of my study. Um, uh, he talks in his book about the um, separation of the church and the Jewish people. He talks you know, over the last 2,000 years, separation of church and synagogue. And he talks about how that um, earlier on in history, there were tens of, tens of thousands of Torah-observant Jews Uh, And it was quite normal to be a Jew and believe in Jesus. And it was also quite normal in the early synagogues to find Gentile Christians um, following after not only Jesus, the um, Jewish Messiah, but also following after parts of the Torah, even though they weren't Jewish, even though these people weren't Jewish. So um, uh, history, however, has shown, as I'm scrolling a bit through Dr. Stern's notes, has shown that um, uh, we lost that expression of Christianity in the first century where Jews and Gentiles were kind of worshiping together um under a messianic Judaism slash, slash um uh, first century Christianity um and and there was no really qualm uh with um one another as long as we recognized our equality in Messiah and our and our uh equal access to the Torah but that quickly changed over the following few centuries, you know, for a second, third, and fourth centuries, as the church became predominantly more and more Gentile flavored. And Jude- Messianic Judaism really kind of went underground, got pushed out of the equation. Um, Torah got pushed out of the room. And so the whole discussion kind of went silent, went cold for the last 1900 or so years until we've got this re emergence of a Messianic Judaism. And for many in historic Christianity, it seems like it's a brand new thing. But in reality, it's an it's a resurgence of an ancient um, um, kind of a cultural cultural expression of Judaism that has existed from long from from long ago, and that's kind of what Dr. Stern talks about. He talks about why uh, Jewish history is my history as a Messianic Jew, and why it should be relevant for you as Christians, and then he. Um, talks about, again, um, Moses from the earliest times has had in every city, those who proclaim him with his words being read in the synagogue every Shabbat. Of course, that's a quote from the Bible and um, um, a quote from the book of Acts chapter 15 where the uh, Jerusalem council got together and factored in the idea how do we deal with um, our nationalism and our blindness? And, and how do we allow Gentiles to come to the gospel but not force them to keep parts of Torah in order to ex- express their, their um, covenant membership and things like that? And so, those are some of the notes from Dr. Stern's book that I wanted to just highlight in these final few minutes. Um, I just want to um, talk about how that, in my own commentary, in my own commentary to uh, Galatians on my own website, I've got um, some um, questions and answers uh, under a section called um, Common um, Objections. Hang on, I forgot the title now. Uh, Ten common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians. That's the uh, section in my uh, Galatians notes. And if you scroll down, let me just kind of skim through some of them and kind of make you aware of of these uh, objections, continuing objections. You know, when I talk about um, Torah observance for Gentile Christians, some of the objections or questions, some of them are outright objections. Some of them are just questions because people are curious about what it would be like for Gentile Christians to embrace Torah. I have to talk about the definition of what is Torah when I'm using it versus when Jewish people use it versus when Christians use it. And I answer those questions. Um, To whom was Torah given and who is required to allow to follow it? Um, Historically, gentiles believe that it was given to jews historically gentiles believe it was given to jews and therefore it seems like the answer to the question of who's uh required or allowed to follow it the answer seems to be well it should be for jewish people but i challenge that uh it was exclusively given to israel that's true however that's simply from the um perspective of god um choosing israel as the um as the servants, as the conveyors, as the ambassadors—that's what I mean by given to just Israel exclusively. It was not blasted around the world and given to all the nations of the world at the time. It was exclusively um, given to a people gathered at the foot of Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, where God, uh, you know, chiseled out the ten words, and then Moses wrote down the rest of the Torah for the people to understand. That's what I mean by given to uh, Israel exclusively. However, it was not given to Israel. For the express purpose of of um limiting it to, to Israel and um um restricting it to Israel, it was it was there was a kind of a Jewish um great commission going on Deuteronomy chapter four. Uh, Israel, Israel was supposed to showcase the Torah so that the surrounding nations would want to be drawn into the lifestyle of faith in God and walking after His ways. So that's what I mean by that particular answer. Didn't Yeshua fulfill the law and nail it to the cross? A lot of uh, opposition to keeping Torah based on that perspective. The answer is no. He didn't nail it to the cross. He actually nailed the debt that we owed to God because of our sin nature. He owed that. He nailed that uh, um, debt to the cross, and so now he set us free to be able to walk into covenant faithfulness, which includes Torah obedience and and Torah observances and things like that. He didn't nail the the, the Torah to the cross. Um, moving down into my own uh, answers. Um, question four. From, that I hear from many Gentile Christians. Didn't Paul teach in many locations that were free from the law? Um, the phrase free from the law is a misnomer, a misunderstanding. We are free from the condemnation of the law. We can read about this in Romans chapter 6. Uh, we are free from the um, uh, penalty uh, expressed in the Torah that is outlined for unrepentant sinners. We are not free from the law obligation, and we are certainly not free from... Um, being punished by God if we um, still, even as believers, blatantly on our nose at God's uh, righteous standards, uh, God can and will um, punish us if we step out. Uh, he is our loving Father, and if you're not receiving punishment as your as the child of God, then you need might need to check your uh, status as a true child of God. Right? That's that's kind of loosely based on a passage as well. So, free from the law in Paul's writings doesn't mean free from obligation to keep the Torah. In its obedient fashion, rather, free from the law really is kind of shorthand for free from the condemnation of the law. If you look at the um, verses where Paul utilizes this, like I said, Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 kind of as a unit. If you read through those in one setting, you'll see that as well. Moving along, uh, question 5, Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law but under grace. This is kind of um, dovetailing on the the, the previous objection uh, or free from the law. Under the law is under the condemnation of law, shorthand, Paul's shorthand for under the condemnation of law, or under the bondage to sin. So, remember, in the Bible, in Paul's writings, he outlines this uh, diabolical relationship that the Torah and sin have with one another, sin and the law, um... Partnered up with one another. It wasn't the law's fault. It was sin's fault, by the way. But um, the 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 sin and the law partnered up with one another, and um, in so doing, they brought the the man of God down into a place where he was condemned because of his unrighteous actions. It 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 um um labeled him a sinner, and he was hopelessly condemned without any solution. And so the law um, spelled out those penalties. It spelled out that condemnation. It labeled him a sinner and he was headed for self destruction he was headed for condemnation he was headed for sentencing until jesus the da stepped in right our our court appointed da stepped in um and set us free from those penalties he paid the price himself he um he removed that guilt And so the label over us has been changed, right? We've been acquitted and we're no longer guilty. We're no longer sinners. We're no longer condemned. And therefore, we're 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 not only no longer under the penalty of the law, the condemnation, but we're also no longer under the bondage because the spirit of God in us, right? Jesus living inside of us has given us the ability to um, walk free from that bondage to sin, we have a new volition and a new will within us we have a now we now have a desire to walk in god's ways and we no longer have a desire to sin. we actually grieve over sin the way God grieves over sin and that's because the spirit inside of us uh has given us this new volition and we're actually now empowered to actually walk in the in the ways of God we, whereas we couldn't before because we were under bondage and under condemnation and under uh, all of that um oppression so when we're when we say we're not under law, we're it's twofold. We're no longer under the condemnation and penalty of sin. That's one aspect, and Paul teaches we're no longer under the bondage and oppression uh, uh, to sin as well. Those that's those that's the two aspects of under law. But it certainly doesn't mean under obligation to keep the Torah. When Paul says we're no longer under law, but under grace. Um, the grace part steps in when we sin and uh, cry out for forgiveness, and God, instead of condemning us and punishing us, uh, commensurate with the sin that we commit, God instead uh, uh, extends forgiveness and grace, and um, uh, grants us a new, new, uh, a renewed sense of urgency to continue to walk in God's ways and keep walking away from sin. Paul says we're not saved by works of the law. Um, explain. Um, I'm going a little longer in this particular part of my study, so just allow me. Uh, works of the law is a technical term in Paul. It doesn't mean keeping the Torah per se. Uh, on the surface, it can mean keeping the Torah, um, but there's good historical evidence, as long as theolo- uh, along with theological evidence in Paul, to suggest that he's again talking about that nationalistic restriction of Torah when he talks about works of the law, a program that was. Uh, in Paul's day, envisioned to be um, uh, walked out by Jews. Um, and so, as long as you were born with a Jewish identity, then covenant expression and your um, faithfulness to the Torah was your expression of your covenant membership. It was an expression of something you already were from, from birth. It wasn't something that you were trying to accomplish by keeping the Torah. I.e., you weren't trying to keep the law to become a covenant member from a Jewish perspective in Paul's day. Rather, since you were already born Jewish and born into the covenant, uh, that was automatic for you. That was kind of a grace aspect, and so all that was left for you to do was to simply do your part as a covenant member and walk out the law as your covenant duty. You're covenantly, you're covenantally bound uh, as an as a born covenant member torah and so works of law kind of explain this whole program that hey i'm already born jewish therefore i need to keep torah because that's my covenant um uh uh duty It's, it's it's my expression of covenant membership that's part of the works of the law it it hinges on this idea that we're already Jews by birth and therefore um, covenant membership is is, uh, given to us at birth and therefore um, the Torah uh, is, is for us as Jews, obviously because of our being born as covenant members. However, for the Gentiles who aren't born into that, well, then they have to acquire a covenant membership by changing their ethnic status legally from Gentile to Jew. And then once that takes place, then they too can ex- express their Torah o- obedience and Torah um, faithfulness, uh, covenant faithfulness in that manner. That's the whole works of the law program. And Paul was at, at, at odds with all of that. It kind of it bleeds into covenantal nominism, but it really has nothing to do with saying that being saved by works of the law as in this wooden... Um, merit theology position where you keep the law to become saved. Paul doesn't have any um, need to explain that you don't need to keep the law in order to be saved because Paul didn't believe that and he didn't believe that people were believing that. The the, the first century Judaism didn't have that perspective. It It was an unnecessary argument to tell them, hey, you need to stop keeping the law in order to be saved. Maybe at the kind of superstitious level, people might believe that in Judaism or in other religions, but in um um officially i don 't believe that that there's any support for Paul having to explain that you don 't need to keep the law to be saved from a first century perspective since that wasn 't something that they were um having a problem with they their hang up was their nationality their hang up was their ethnocentric perspective of we 're Jews first and therefore um the, the, the Torah is our covenant duty as Jews something like that so um Moving along again, going a little bit longer in this part of my study. Um, uh, question seven does, Doesn't Romans 14 teach that Sabbath keeping is optional? Uh, the short answer, um, no, not really. Uh, I did a whole study on Romans 14. Go back and listen to it, it's on my website as well as my YouTube channel. Um, for Romans 14 teaches that Sabbath keeping is again uh, for all God's people, the Sabbath's made for man, not man for the sabbath uh, the sabbath came along in the bible well before there were any jews so um you know it's outlined it's di- it's uh displayed for us as early as the, the book of genesis chapter one and two we have sabbath so um uh go back and study that out a little bit more for yourself but sabbath keeping optional mm, no it's it's the sabbath is for god's people we'll just say it that way so if you're a jew and you're part of god's people the sabbath's for you if you're a gentile and you're part of god's people the sabbath's for you And then the other questions explain Colossians 2.16. I talk about, again, the middle wall of partition there. Um, Question 9, doesn't Paul explicitly say in Galatians that the law is bondage? This kind of goes along with the earlier topic. No, the law is not bondage. It can be bondage if, to you, it is um, creating some type of um, meritorious system of you think how you're approaching God, then yeah, that's legalism, that's bondage. But in and of itself, God's Torah was never designed to be... um, a ball and chain around your neck, right? It's, it's not designed to be that way. God never gave uh, a legalistic bondage to his people. Uh, that would be um, uh, a really sadistic God that would give a law that would um, put his people into bondage. No. In fact, coming out of Egypt was bondage. So if the Torah is bondage, and then the picture that the, the book of Exodus paints for us is that God broke their bondage in Egypt only to bring them to the through the uh, Mount Sinai in order to lead them into bondage again. If, in fact, the law is bondage, that's exactly what happened. But of course, we know that that's not true. The, the The Sinai event is a picture of freedom. It's a paradigm of salvation, being set free from the bondage of sin, of which Egypt is that paradigm all over again. So the law is not bondage. The law is freedom. And then the last question is, not law written on our hearts now? Why try to keep it externally, whether as a Messianic Jew or as a..." as a uh, Gentile. um, The answer is, yes, it is written on our hearts, and that's all the more reason why we should be keeping it, right? It's not that there should be some dichotomy and and contest between the internal Torah and the external expression of it. Rather, if you go back and read Jeremiah 31, 31, as well as um, Ezekiel 36, in those parts, God talks about bringing this new covenant into reality with national and corporate Israel, which means, on an individual level, it, it rings it it's, it stands to be true as well. So whatever is true of the of the group is true for the individuals within the group. And in those passages, God promises Israel that He's going to uh, create in them a new heart. Uh, Take out the heart of flesh and replace it with a heart. I'm sorry, take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and fill them with this Holy Spirit. And the result in those passages, those promises, is that corporately Israel would walk into Torah and keep it more dutifully, more faithfully, and actually more uh, in in the truest fulfilled sense of the word. And so, because it is truly written on our hearts, when Jesus moves in, then we have really no excuse for not keeping it and not desiring it to keep it. And so in closing uh, to this study, there were more things I wanted to talk about. Uh, for instance, Tim Haig has a resource available at his um, uh, web store, uh, Why We Keep the Torah, 10 Persistent Questions, and it's along the lines of the same one that I talked about, a gen- general kind of objections and questions that Gentiles bring up as to why we don't keep Torah. You can go look, at, take a look at that. I'll put a link in the uh, description on the uh, of the video here but um for the most part um that's gonna do it for this study on um uh judaism v christianity we're done with the study we're done with the after chat uh section on that if you have more questions about tor observance for jews and for gentiles feel free to uh drop comments into the video and i'll address those or shoot me an email, um, you can find my email address on my website on any one of my commentaries, just click on any commentary, scroll to the very bottom, and typically there's my uh, email address. Um, drop, me a, drop me an email question, and let me know uh, your questions or concerns about that area, and I'll do my best to address it. Okay? Uh, remember, we're taking a break for the next two weeks. Um, uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, uh, no, no no live study, but we'll pick up our study again January 7th, uh, 2023, at the beginning of the new year. Uh, but that'll do it for exploring uh, for uh, Judaism v. Christianity or Judaism-Christianity incompatible with one another. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Aruban Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week, but if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put Together, This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around, and um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tatsy Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five minute video on the topic, uh, every day twice a day sometimes and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that I try to keep fairly busy Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website and for those of you in post-production you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen subscribe to my YouTube channel Uh, hit the bell for notifications leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on Whatever device that you're using smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, You know Android device or whatever um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, Week after week in fact if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now It'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, Mm -hmm. via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at taitsatorah.com, take a moment to scroll down to the very, very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine, is what I'm calling it, um, of, uh, of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's... Grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat, uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions, and and prayers and support, and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here, or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link, as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so Absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity, and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am, and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So, uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well too. I mean, uh, God. Uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. This is the second thirty-minute segment of an hour-long study. This is an excursus to the tr- the um, a lengthy. Um, a uh, three-part um, uh, Shema study, and um, we're um, going to wrap it up tonight. And so, um, we're, we're go- the study's going a little bit longer. If you're listening to the full hour-long study, we're probably going to go maybe even 50 minutes longer. So, permit me. I um, took a little too long in the uh, previous uh, segment about uh, Judaism v. Christianity. But what we're doing is we're having this discussion about the Holy Spirit as an excursus to paper three, which is on the Holy Spirit, and we're we're dialoguing about. Was the Holy Spirit within people in the Old Testament, versus I'm sorry, was He only upon people in the Old Testament versus within people? And the reason we're having this discussion, it's not really a Trinitarian debate. It could have some Trinitarian overtones depending on what the, what perspective you approach, but overall, it's not really a Trinitarian debate a discussion. It's more discussion on on um, the relevance of of um, properly understanding the Word of God from a from a whole perspective where we're allowing the presence of the Holy Spirit to um, be both in us and on us as children of God, as followers after Messiah. Um, So let's pick up the discussion, and and hopefully you'll see how it's relevant for us. It's not really um, even a salvific discussion per se, but it's important for us to understand this particular aspect, and let me pick up that thought beginning my study here. I may have left off with this particular um, uh, paragraph last week, but this will be the overlap. I go on to say, what we, what have we learned thus far? We're talking about the study of in versus on, rook within versus rook upon. And I say, the, the the what we've learned simply is that a person must experience the gener, genuine regeneration from the Spirit in order to be genuinely saved. So I maintain that it is impossible to come to a salvation um, experience or a salvation relationship with God via His Son Messiah without the regeneration of the Spirit. You must have a Holy Spirit on the inside, right? You've seen little stickers that say Intel inside. Uh, we need stickers as Christians to say Holy Spirit inside. We must have the Holy Spirit on the inside or else we will not have the genuine salvation experience. Um, it will be a pseudo experience. It can be a head knowledge. It can even be a very kind of soul-moving um, emotional experience that you can go through in a Christian church. But unless the old man dies and the new man is reborn, unless, like to quote Jesus himself... Unless, you know, speaking to Nicodemus, unless you're born again or born from above, then you cannot taste salvation. You cannot taste eternal life. So um, this truth is fundamentally applicable from Adam to today, which means no man approaches the Father except through Yeshua. And I go on to say no man may come unless the Father draws him. So uh, Yeshua draws us to the Father and then... We uh, have this experience with Yeshua um, uh, directly so it's that that the relationship where God and the Son are working together to bring about salvation. you can read John 630 through uh, 71 where I say the primary discussion there is eternal life offered exclusively through Yeshua. So since we as Christians know, that you cannot be saved outside of expressing faith in Jesus, right? You must confess Him as Lord. You must rely upon Him to uh, uh, remove the stain of sin in your life. You must um, believe by faith that He is your advocate for sin. He is, I'm sorry, your advocate to the Father. He is the one who is paying the price. He is the sacrifice that's being offered up to God on your behalf. Right The whole typology of the Old Testament with the sacrifices was designed to teach the people of Israel and anyone else after that, including we Gentiles uh we Gentile those of us in the Gentile church, was designed to teach us the importance of um substitutionary atonement God- de- um demands a payment for sin he can't just wiggle his nose or blink his eyes or cross his hands like I dream of genie and you know nod his head and and you know de, de-, 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 de- and the sin's gone it doesn't work that way instead. Um, God must receive a payment for the sin that man has in his life, and so the animals were brought in and uh, among other reasons to teach us of that substitutionary atonement that blood provides the atonement the the cleansing and the scrubbing clean of the sin in our life and the payment for sin and if you want to say it's the covering for sin, you can say that too, but I think that's that's kind of the um the 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 lesser way to understand the sacrificial uh, system. But uh, germane to what we're trying to study right now, when we're talking about Holy Spirit within versus Holy Spirit with on, uh, Holy Spirit upon, is that when you accept Jesus as your Lord, then you're bringing the Holy Spirit into the equation, and He is the one that causes the Spirit within you to realize that you are a genuine child of God. He's the one that that uh, activates the, uh, the, the life inside of you, um, um so that you cry out abba father so that you realize that jesus is lord and that you can confess him as lord um and so that's the witness within you uh i go on to say in my commentary let's turn now to a discussion on yeshua's promise of the spirit uh in uh acts chapter one and earlier very early on in acts uh yeshua promises that um even though he's leaving planet earth bodily that he's going to send his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, right? There's that Trinity overlap. Who comes to dwell inside of us? Is it the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Messiah, or the Holy Spirit? Is it, when we talk about three persons of the Trinity, is it person one, person two, or person three, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Which person takes up residency within us? And the answer is, it's all three, but it's not three spirits. That's the the mystery. Um, the mystery of, of the Trinity is that, we, we believe in one divine being known as God, one divine Yahweh, uh, and yet there are three persons who wear that same label, Yahweh, or God, or um, and the Spirit is unified among them. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and yet God, the Father who is pure Spirit, sends the Spirit of His Son, Messiah, to live in us as the Holy Spirit, and yet it's not modalism, it's the mystery of the Trinity. So, gotta got to embrace it that way. What does Jesus say at the, uh, at, when he's just about to leave planet Earth and he's chatting with his disciples? In Acts chapter 1, he says this. When they were together, this is Luke writing, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? Uh, FYI, eschatologically, that means at some point in time, he will restore it. And we know that the promises lean in that direction and that God will restore self-rule to Israel. And I believe that's what the millennium is all about. But what does Yeshua say? Instead of saying, yes, right now we're going to do it, or uh, set your clocks, because this is when it's going to happen. Instead, he says, cryptically, he answered, "Mm, you don't need to know the dates or the times, (laughs) right? Disappointingly, the Father has kept these under his own authority, right? Um, I'm not going to let you know. Uh, Papa keeps his own calendar and his own counsel and... um, Uh, You don't need to know about those right now. But what you do need need to know, Yeshua says, you will receive power when the Ruh Kodesh comes upon you, the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim and in all Yehudah and Shamran, indeed to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter one, six through eight as rendered from David Stern's uh, Bible. Notice in verse eight, right? As I uh, highlight this in my uh, commentary, Amazingly, what we find is a New Testament passage that utilizes the word upon instead of in. So we're having this discussion about the contest. Is the Holy Spirit in you in the New Testament versus merely upon you in the Old Testament? And the relevance of the study is that there are many in common Christian circles who believe that the spirituality that we enjoy in the New Testament is vastly superior to than what was available in the Old Testament based on the... Presence and power of the Holy Spirit. There are senses in which that uh, discussion is true, factual, um, because we now live with the knowledge of who Jesus is Uh, unequivocally and we don't have the mystery of the gospel uh being hidden like god hid it from us in the old testament we don't have the mystery of the of the gospel of jews and gentiles being brought together the mystery of the incarnation of god uh coming to us as very man in the person of messiah the mystery of salvation of how a person comes to understand a genuine relationship with god through his son yeshua all these mysteries are being um unfolded right god um, bottled them up in mystery in the Old Testament, but now they are revealed exclusively and explicitly in the New Testament writing. So that part is true, and now it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to approach a relationship with God and to have all the verses. Right, We also have the, the canonization of the scriptures over history, and now we have a Bible that we can hold in our hand that authoritatively speaks to our life and to every situation for us. So in that sense, New Testament experience is vastly superior to the Old Testament experience. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was genuinely within people in the Old Testament because that's the only way to be saved. The Holy Spirit must come into you in order to bring you into a proper relationship with God at the salvific level. And so um, everyone in the Old Testament that we believe was a genuine believer, right? Go back and read Hebrews chapter 11 through the uh, um, Hall of Faith uh, people listed there. We must believe that they must have all have been uh, filled with the Holy are um, indwelled by the Holy Spirit at the salvific level. but there's also this experience of where the Holy Spirit comes upon you for empowerment. So we could make this um, distinction between the Spirit being within us for um, indwelling so that we could be saved. We can compare and contrast that with the empowerment that comes upon us subsequently after we become saved in order to give us marching orders and additional um, um, supercharging to go out and do things supernaturally that we, that we normally couldn't do as uh, saved individuals or that we, that we normally couldn't do um, without this supercharging, and we certainly couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit on the inside. So the New Testament has a passage that where we utilize the word upon versus in, and so um, all I'm going to do now is I'm going to explain and show and demonstrate to you. I'm just going to do my commentary somewhat um, without stopping to explain to you that um, the unified language of the Bible of in versus on is not easily neat and cut, cut, neat, neatly cut up into all of the upon language is in the Old Testament, and all the in languages in the new or something like that. Rather, both Parts of our Bible in and on are used interchangeably across the Testaments. You're going to find in-language in the Old Testament. You're going to find upon-language in the New Testament. And comparatively, you're going to find upon-language in the Old Testament. And you're going to find in-language in the New Testament. And so the takeaway that we're supposed to understand when we realize that in and on are in both parts of our Bible is that uh, this experience with God's Spirit is meant to be unified across the Bible. It's not supposed to be kind of um, uh, segregated the way we've kind of done it in our historic Christian circles. So, New Testament passage where uh, the Greek word upon shows up. And just technically speaking, upon the word upon is epi in the Greek, and its meaning is, in fact, upon, right? You ever hear a pastor say, the original Greek means this? <laughs> it's really neat when the original Greek and the English uh, translation are just spot on when it comes to uh, their definition, the Greek word epi means upon. <laughs> All right. Wow. No no brainer there. Um, I go on to say, in fact, this word is never translated as in anywhere that I could find in my own uh, research into the apostolic scriptures. So we need to say that it's upon. It it doesn't say, in other words, it doesn't have a nuance of, nuance of in somewhere else. Some words sometimes have uh, overlap in their um, uh, interpretations and their meanings. I go on to say, clearly the work of the Spirit in these verses refers to taking the gospel message beyond the confines of the city limits, right? This is Yeshua explained to his disciples. And we take this gospel into the foreign mission field of the non-Jews, right? The great commission at the end of Matthew. And doing this is something that was quote unquote unthinkable for the ethnocentric Jewish first century Judaisms, right? We talked about ethnocentrism in the first uh, segment of my study, Judaism v. Christianity. The early first century Jews were not quite comfortable telling non-Jews that God is their God, that the Spirit is their Spirit, that the, the Bible is their Bible, that covenant membership is for them, that the Messiah is for them as well. For the first century Jew, it was more natural and comfortable to give all of these factors and details to fellow Jews, because this was something that was part of not only our culture as Jews, but it was part of our history and part of the prophecies and promises that God gave to us as Jewish people, as Israel. But to take all of these prophecies and promises and covenants of promise and the Messiah and and understanding of God and His Spirit and all that, and to give that to non-Jews, it's a little bit outside of our comfort zone. It required the um, overpowering of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, um, the supercharging of God's Spirit to be able to move us out of that comfort zone. I continue. The Jewish core of the disciples of Tolmanim needed the empowering of the Rucha Kodesh if they were to go, if they were going to overcome the social barriers created by the prevailing rabbinic halakha that did what? That sought to separate Jew from non Jew. So the vile man made wall of separation that um was erected in the first century because of the cultural expression of torah observance and the ethnocentric jewish expression of nationalism that that blinded the jewish people in the first century into believing that the torah was a jewish exclusive document that god was exclusive to israel as a people that the holy spirit was exclusive for holy jewish people right for the holy ones um, and that the messiah was sent only to the jews and therefore the torah was a covenantal document exclusive to jews all of that needed to be dismantled, that, that mindset, so that we can incorporate non-Jews into the covenant people of God. Indeed, the gospel is always for Gentiles as well as Jews. And so, um, that's why it required the Holy Spirit to say, as I put in my commentary, overcome that social barrier created by the, the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, otherwise known as the works of the law, the ergon namu in the Greek um the um the, the covenantal nomism of the first century the nationalism the restricted use of Torah I continue Acts chapter two in my uh commentary I say which cites Joel three one through five uh, uh or two twenty-eight through thirty two in 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 the uh, um in the uh, uh, uh the the Tanakh is uh I say proof positive that God was using Jewish believers to reach out to non-Jewish peoples everywhere right um joel envisioned a time when uh, gentiles would be brought in as well it was part of the gospel promise that god gave to abraham way back in genesis chapter 12 through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed not as they're converting to become jews themselves so that all of god's people end up being jewish that doesn't work all of god's people can never be all jewish nor can all of god's people ever be all non-jewish that doesn't work either either one of those expressions of god's people falls desperately short of what it means to be the people of God. What we need are the expressions of the Jewish people, people from Israel, as well as the inclusion of people from the nations. That is the proper bouquet and expression of God's true people as outlined in the One New Man that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. I continue. Another passage in the Apostolic Scriptures, in my commentary I say that uses the language of on, where we would think that it should read in is in first peter 4 12 through 16 let's continue to read that um uh, peter says quote dear friends don't regard as strange the fiery ordeal occurring among you to test you as if something extraordinary were happening to you notice peter's writing to believers he goes on rather to the extent that you share the fellowship of the Messiah's sufferings, that's how I know he's talking to believers, then you should also rejoice, so that you will rejoice even more when his Shekhinah, which is a Hebrew word referring to the manifest presence of God, the Shekhinah is how you're going to say it in most English circles, but uh, the Shekhinah is a rabbinic word. It it doesn't actually even show up in the the Torah in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but it shows up in the rabbinic writings when the Shekhinah is revealed, meaning the glory of God is revealed. So that sentence, rejoice, so that you will rejoice even more when His Holy Spirit is revealed upon you. When the, uh, the, the glory of God, not just the Holy Spirit, but the specific manifest presence of God. That's what Shekinah means. Uh, Peter continues, if you are being insulted because you bear the name of the Messiah, again, speaking to brothers, speaking to believers, and if you're being insulted because you're a Christian, that's how it says it in, your, in most of your English versions. Uh, this is Stern's rendering. If you bear the name of Messiah, how blessed you are. Right, it is an honor and a privilege to be persecuted for the name of Messiah. If indeed it's because you are leading and living your lives, uh, leading your, your uh, conducting your life as a genuine Christian. If you're just getting persecuted because of your stupidity, but you're just a Christian, but you're doing stupid things in Jesus' name, well, then shame on you. Right, you're, that's there's no blessing there. Uh, Peter continues or the Spirit of the Shekhinah, the Spirit of the Holy One, that is, the Spirit of God, is resting, ready for it, on you. But we're Christians. Shouldn't Peter have said, the Spirit of God is resting in you? Theologically, is true. He could have said he's resting in you. He's residing in you. But Peter's wanting us to understand that, for Christians, there is this double experience, this, this dual expression of in versus on. For genuine Christians, the point I'm trying to make is that we are both um, walking in the in as well as the on. At least we should be walking in the on. There are many Christians who don't seem to be aware of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and indeed, perhaps maybe uh, baby Christians might not even have that on experience at that moment. Uh, God is the one that initiates the 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 on experience. He's he's also the one that initiates the in experience, but the the subsequent marching orders that we receive um later on in life um uh as we go through our Christian life, the the empowerments, the empowerings to do um tasks and um conduct um um uh uh things or uh, uh uh what am i trying to say um uh, do certain tasks conduct that type of uh, uh, um employment tasks for god um obedient things that we're supposed to be doing it requires the power of the spirit to do those so peter says that the holy spirit is resting on you let none of you suffer for being a murderer here's where he uh, talks about um you know there's a way where you can suffer as a christian where it's just because your own stupidity or your own ignorance or your own um sinfulness and that's nothing to be to brag about it's nothing to be blessed about let none of you suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler in other people's affairs right if you are suffering because of that shame on you right um, there's nothing to be proud of there, but he says, if anyone suffers for being messianic and that's where your Christian virgins say for being Christian, let him not be ashamed, right? It's, it's a great honor <clears throat> to suffer for holiness sake, for righteousness sake. This reminds me of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, where, uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, the blessed are those who suffer on behalf of following after me, right? They bear my name. They bear my witness. And because of that, they're receiving persecution and suffering and mocking and 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 things like that. Um, when the world belittles you and looks down on you because of who you are as a follower after me, well, then there's a blessing there. You don't see it right away, right? You don't see it at the time. It just seems like um, the persecution is all you can sense. But... Um, there is a blessing you just have to wait for it even if it has to come after you go on to be with god there is indeed a blessing so uh, peter must have picked up the picked his theology up from the master himself let him not be ashamed if you suffer for being messianic but let him bring glory to god by the way that he bears this name let's keep going in my commentary here and finish this out um, I'm, like I said, I'm going a little bit longer in my uh, uh, live study tonight, so if you'll just bear with me. In my commentary, I say, again, the Greek word for on in verse 14 of Peter's writings is epi, right? It's upon. And context, again, shows that an already genuine believer is receiving subsequent empowering to withstand the trials that come as a result of bearing the name of Yeshua in the first place. So I do believe that there is a... Initial one-time experience where God comes into you, and it is one time only. I believe that the salvation experience is, is designed to be one time. Just like in the natural, the birth experience is only once. I do not espouse to reincarnation. You cannot be born a second time physically. We're all born only once. And the natural explains the physical I believe, in this in this um, um, uh, kind of um, typological fashion, type and shadow. In the natural, there's only one birth. And therefore, in the physical, there's only one spiritual birth. It's only necessary to be born again once and come into a relationship with Jesus once. That's the in part of our in versus on discussion. However, now that you have experienced your new birth as a Christian, subsequent to that, as you live your life, at various times in your life, according to God's choosing, He can supercharge you, or empower you, or give you marching orders. That's the kind of the motif that I'm working from. I'm an ex, uh, ex, um, I'm, in a, I'm, an, I'm in I'm an, I'm an, I'm a veteran. There we go. Ex, ex, uh, military, and um, therefore I understand what it means to receive marching orders. And your marching orders aren't given just once in your life as a soldier. Rather, you receive marching orders uh, time and time again, depending on what um, the the commander of your unit uh, has for you. You can receive marching orders on the first day of duty, or you can continue to receive marching orders uh, throughout different times of your military career. That's the point I'm trying to make is the same analogy holds true for God. He gives us more and more marching orders, um, and he empowers us uh, to do tasks as we continue to live our lives for him and make our vessels usable for him in a salvific I'm sorry in a sanctification manner. I continue verse 14 in Peter's writings here clearly shows the proper order in which to understand the in versus on debate, namely the spirit saves an individual first And then the Spirit subsequently empowers such an individual to witness for Yeshua. Now, that's what I say is the proper primary understanding for the believer. It is also possible for God to empower an unbeliever to do work for him and to do a task for him to complete some work without even having to save that individual first or even make it a salvific discussion. Um, God, throughout the Old Testament, or even certain parts of the New Testament, allowed His Holy Spirit to come upon and overshadow a person to empower them to do certain tasks, but it's not necessarily a salvation discussion. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because the power of the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, overshadowed them and came upon them, that that means that they were saved. Right? It doesn't automatically mean that, oh, the Spirit was on you, therefore that means you were saved. No, unless there's language that, to suggest that He was within you, then we can't automatically assume. Let's continue my commentary. What, then, I say, is the, quote, work of the Spirit, quote taught throughout the apostolic scriptures? What is the work of the Spirit? Simply the subsequent empowering of an already saved individual to do things that he normally could not do under his own power. So that's the empowerment. If you want to kind of distinguish between uh, um, indwelling on the one hand and empowering on the other hand, we could um, separate it that way. I continue. The crucial key to unlocking the debate over in versus on is, in my opinion, knowing that the rule kodash firstly works in us to bring about regeneration and then works on us to bring about empowerment to do the will of God. It's that simple. If you don't walk away from anything with anything from this commentary, walk away with that that last statement that I just made there. I continue, I personally think that we should change our language in our Christian circles from in versus on to more accurate depiction of in as well as on. Instead of arguing and setting up a false dichotomy between in versus on, let's make this inclusive in as well as on. I say the Spirit saves and the Spirit empowers, right? I mean, in my opinion, it's just a, it's, it's, it's elementary. It's no-brainer. It's trivial. It's it's automatically understood to be that way if we just read what the Bible is telling us. Um, I ask rhetorically, why can't we grasp these two important biblical truths simultaneously? Why do we have to say—and I've heard—this, oh this, by the way, this again, this, this um, conversation, as far as I've experienced it, only comes up in Christian circles. Where we're trying to set up this false dichotomy between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's the whole replacement theology all over again, or dispensational discussion all over again, where there's some experience in the old that's superseded by the experience in the new, or some reality in the old that's superseded by the reality in the new. And usually, it's the idea the the, uh, the contest of Old Testament versus New Testament, people of God in the Old Testament, Israel versus people of God, in the New Testament, the Gentile Christian Church. Uh, Old Covenant versus New Covenant, Old Testament versus New Testament, um, uh, something to that effect. Uh, and so, the inverse is on, calls, falls fits right in with that particular um, dialogue. I continue. The quote-unquote Old Testament saints were saved, in my understanding, exactly the same way that we in the 21st century are saved. How is it? By grace, through faith, in the gift of God, namely, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God within us. Notice I put the nice, triadic language, uh, the gift of God, Son of God, Spirit of God, etc., etc., right? Because that's the proper way to understand the full biblical experience when it comes to salvation. Let's continue. I am going to finish this tonight. I say in my commentary, yet, in a very real way, we have to recognize that the presence and ministry of the Ruh Kodesh as we know him today according to the times of the Tanakh, if we compare it, would not be fully realized until the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua. And you have to read the entire chapter of John 14, but focus specifically on verses 16-18. through 18 um to see the the kind of the where i'm getting the gist of what i'm talking about right now so when we read through the old testament we begin to realize that there is this progressive nature to the bible where god is purposely concealing things in mystery in the tanakh waiting for the time of the fulfillment and the explanation and the unfolding of that mystery in the um in the time period of the Apostolic scriptures in the times in which yeshua lived in the times of the apostles and writing of the uh, the the rest of the Bible for us, so God purposely kind of hid and shrouded the um uh the 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 um these aspects of the the aspects of the ministry of the Holy spirit I go on to describe it this way of this ministry and individual power of the Spirit, we have eventual uh, individuals such as Ezekiel prophesying about this in chapter 11 and in chapter 36, and I referenced that earlier about the power of the Spirit bringing us into a place as national Israel where we're empowered to walk in the ways of God, indeed perhaps maybe even for the first time in our life, but at least certainly in a renewed sense of the place where we can fulfill uh, the righteous requirement of, of the Torah, uh, like Paul talks about in Romans 8, the first, uh, say, five verses. I continue. Again, um, this is also the same individual spirit that's spoken about in Joel 2, 28 and 29, which is confirmed by Peter in Acts 2, 16 through 18. So remember, the writers of the Epistle Scriptures are not inventing new experiences when they're writing about the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon and coming within individuals. They're drawing all of their theology from the Tanakh and from the promises, but they're filling it in those promises with their own experience that they're now um, enjoying in this new covenant reality in Messiah. So the two are working together. There's not a dichotomy between old covenant and new covenant or Old Testament and New Testament in that respect. Rather, we have um, promise and prophecy in the Tanakh and Old Testament, which are fulfilled and explained in the New Testament. It's the old adage the old is the new, um, contained. The new is the old, explained. I think that's the way. That's one of the um, or the, the old is the new, con- the new is the old is the new revealed. The old is the new concealed. The new is the old revealed. One of those ways, you guys. I think most Christians understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's continue. The ruler Kukulides was indeed present. In the days of the Tanakh, right, when we read historically about empowering individuals such as Betzalel and Shimshon, right? That's, um, but, but, uh, I don't even know how you say it in English. Betzalel is how I say it in Hebrew. Betzalel? But, Bez, but, Bezazel? Bezazel? I'll have to look that up in my English version. Uh, but Samson is Shimshon. And these individuals, of course, enjoyed, um, a, um, a, uh, a presence of the Holy Spirit that was very unique. Um, Betzalel. Uh, was the the master craftsman as I talk about uh, who designed um, the, many of the pieces of the ark? Uh, I'm sorry, not just the ark, but the tabernacle. But God supernaturally empowered him to to be able to create those pieces. And then Samson, of course, um, had the power come upon the power of the Spirit come upon him, so that he could do miraculous works. He was kind of like the very first Avenger in the truest sense of the word, and that he had a superpower. He had the kind of a super super soldier serum, that the Holy Spirit that enabled him to become super strong and do many many mighty things kind of a mix up mash up between what we might think of in terms of um uh Captain America and the Hulk, um, he had some ability to where he became strong. First, he was weak, but now he became strong, right? Both of those Avengers enjoy that particular aspect. So, um, But uh, B'Tzellel and Shimshon, yet when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, his ministry was slightly different than that of today because of his unique role in what happened after Acts chapter 2. So uh, what happened in Acts chapter 2? Um we already know it it's the um outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which enabled the whole the uh disciples to be able to speak in new languages new uh languages that they'd never learned and to begin to share the gospel with all peoples of the surrounding nations and to explain the the the, the salvation of Jesus and the um um the new birth experience. I go on to say perhaps it's best to think of his ministry in the Tanakh as, quote, less expansive, end quote, than as compared to today. Less expansive, I go on to say, is not to be equated with non-existent, quote-unquote. Understand the difference? Less expansive means he was there, but he wasn't working as broadly in the way that he would do after Acts chapter 2. And this was according to the plans and purposes of God. God uniquely planned it that the Holy Spirit would be more expansive in the New Testament um, writings in an Epstock era than he would in the in the time periods of the Tanakh. That's just according to the mystery of God, but again, less expansive is not the same as non-existent. I continue. A survey of the passages and wording used in both Testaments, right, Old and New, will show that the quote-unquote old does not exclusively employ an on reading and ostensibly compared to an exclusive in-reading in the New. So, um, again, just from the um, writings themselves from the the raw data there's not exclusive in verses on in the bible and then in closing again we're finishing this up tonight and we'll poise ourselves for brand new studies next year when we meet again uh january 7th uh that saturday i i conclude by saying rather a survey of the passages and wording that's used in quote unquote both testaments i.e the whole bible will demonstrate we have quote on unquote and in quote unquote being used interchangeably, and this is the way the Bible is given to us, and it's done this way for a reason. It's used interchangeably in order to teach us that the Rukh Kodesh both saves, that is in, and empowers, that is on, and that he does so consequently and consistently with the eternal plans and purposes of God the Father. And so in that in that way, in closing, what we can see is that the Holy Spirit is the um, power sent from God? He's not merely a, an impersonal force uh, and a um, a thing, right? He's not a construct. He's not a um, he's not um, just a piece of code that God wrote or programmed so and 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 and, and uh, downloaded into us as believers so that we can operate correctly. He's not an operating system. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal object, nor is he um, a thing. Right um, he's not a mineral, um, he's not uh, uh, impersonal. Um, rather, he has a work and a ministry. he has feelings, he has emotions, uh, he has a will, and in his um, role as as um, um, agency as uh, being an agent of the father being sent by the father and the son. Um you know when we talked about spiration again I'll flash a little um logo on the, a, a little review a little um image on the screen that talks about uh um spirated where the holy spirit is is breathed out from the father and the son right the father sends the spirit and the son sends the spirit that whole um filioque debate all over again but the holy spirit is sent and he obediently does that which the father tells him to do uh much like yeshua in that agency fashion but the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father to be to be upon people, to empower them, and to be within people to regenerate the, the heart so that a man can cry out, Abba, Father, and can come into the salvation experience, a genuine salvation experience, with God the Father exclusively through Yeshua the Son. But that's going to do it for our Shema study tonight. Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity is officially... Ended. It's over. We finished it. Wow. At the end of the year. So we're done with our Matthew study and we're done with the extrema study next year, starting in January, January 7th. Um, we'll start two brand new studies for the hour long studies. Again, I don't have both of them decided upon yet, yet still praying about which ones to uh, work on or which ones to present. But I hope you join me again for these live studies where we talk about these particular topics. I know one of them is going to be a Trinity topic, but I'm not sure, I haven't decided on the other one yet, but that'll do it for our study for tonight. Uh, Be blessed, stay safe, uh, have a a blessed holiday season, and um, everyone have a a blessed new year, and we'll see you again in the brand new year. Let's turn to our liturgy and uh, wind down in our study tonight, I won't wax long, um, but I will use this liturgy uh, two times in a row. What we're going to be looking at by way of liturgy is Deuteronomy 34 verses, uh, um, let's see, verses 10 through 12, and then Genesis verses 1 through 3. We've read this in the past. What we do during this time of year is cycle our Torah um, scrolls over from Genesis back around again to Deuteronomy uh, back around to um, I'm sorry to say that one more time we cycle our Torah scroll from Deuteronomy back around over to Genesis we flip the Bible from one end to the other for a Torah scroll this would involve re-rolling it from, Genesis all, from Deuteronomy all the way back over to Genesis which takes quite a while because you don't want to damage the scroll especially if it's an ancient scroll uh, precious thing so we're going to kind of imitate that quality in our uh, liturgy. Let me read Deuteronomy 34, verse, the last three verses, and I'll flip my Bible over and read Genesis, the first three chapters, uh, the first three verses um, for us in our liturgy. I'm only going to read the English tonight. Next week I'll pick up the uh, Hebrew and the, uh, uh, of, of the same uh, sections. And then we are going to read a passage out of Ephesians for the Greek part uh, well, not the Greek tonight, but you guys understand. So Deuteronomy 34, starting right there on that side of the screen, for those of you who are with me in the live class, you can see my screen. Um, Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse 10, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Verse 11, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. And the verse twelve, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's it for Deuteronomy. Let's turn immediately over to Genesis and read the first three verses right there. Starting right there, for those of you who are with me in the live class. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse one. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That'll do it for our reading from the uh, Tanakh, from the Old Testament. Let's turn to the Apostolic Scriptures and read those verses that we studied in the Romans uh, study, uh, where we looked at Ephesians 2, verses 18, 19, and... How far do I want to go? You um, should probably, um, starting in verse 14 and working way right down through verse 16. Let's start right there. We might read, let's see. Yeah, let's read those three, 14, 15, 16. So starting right there on that side of the page, Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the um, uh, short little video for tonight. And after we watch the video, then we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and E-Bible. They bring the questions and I bring the answers from a Messianic Jewish perspective, okay? Here is the question for us tonight. What does it mean to become uncircumcised in Romans 2.25? The verse reads, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That's our verse, Romans 2.25 from the ESV. Does this verse indicate loss of salvation or sanctification? That's really kind of the looming question. I personally do not believe Paul is teaching loss of salvation in this verse, but he may indeed be chastising certain circumcised Jews about the important responsibilities of living as a sanctified, set-apart member of the covenant made with Father Abraham. Recall our liturgy from Genesis 17, 9-14, where God talks about how that God is going to make a covenant with Abraham concerning this verse in Romans, and given the context of the surrounding verses about circumcision and Torah observance, law, obedience, I believe Paul is trying to convey to the Jews primarily, i.e. the circumcised ones who were in possession of the Torah and those who were listening to this letter and reading it, that you know the letter that Paul gave, he's conveying to them that the outward sign of circumcision is of value if it is commensurate with keeping the law, keeping the Torah both of which are supposed to flow from a heart of genuine love for God. Read the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 6. Basically, the Abrahamic covenant, the paradigm for faith, and the Mosaic covenant, the paradigm for obedience, are supposed to work in harmony. Read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Romans 2, 13, John 14, 15, and 1 John 5, 3. Understand what I'm trying to say here. They work together. They don't compete with one another. Indeed, Paul contrasts the Gentile of Romans 2, 14 and 15 who has the work of the law written on their heart as evidenced by the fact that they by nature do what the law requires, right? Read Romans 2, 14 all over again. There's this contrast here. A Gentile who's keeping the law. He contrasts this with the Jew of Romans 2, 17 through 29, who relies on the law, boasts in God, and is instructed from the law, read verse 17, and yet is found to be a transgressor of the law by stealing, verse 21, committing adultery, and robbing temples, verse 22. Oive. We see then that violation of Torah dishonors God, Romans 2.23, and essentially invalidates the purpose of bearing the outward sign of circumcision as a Jewish member of Israel, because you bring shame to God and yourself in the sight of the Gentiles. Romans 224, right? This is Paul's admonition and challenge to us. You do not lose your salvation if you violate Torah and God never expected perfection in the first place. You don't lose your salvation. Indeed, well-respected Christian author C. E. B. Cranfield is aptly noted, quote, It seems that what is meant here is not a perfect fulfillment of the radical demands of the law, like many think Paul's teaching, but a real faith in God and the serious engagement with obedience which springs therefrom. That's from his commentary to Romans. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind as we're reading through the Bible. To be sure, true atonement slash forgiveness was never far away. Recall that Old Testament persons simply needed to repent and bring a sacrifice to receive atonement. Recall Leviticus 4, 27, 28, and 31, which even without animal sacrifices today is nevertheless consistent with the New Testament application of this principle anyway. Read 1 John 1, 9, where confessionary repentance of sin is emphasized. Thus, the crescendo of Paul's teaching about the Torah-keeping Jew who's supposed to be circumcised both inwardly and outwardly is revealed in the final parts of this chapter, 28 and 29, those verses where he describes a Jew whose praise comes not from man, but from God himself. Cranfield's conclusion is fitting for our study, quote, it seems therefore better to understand Romans 2.25 to mean not that the Jew's circumcision has been annulled in God's sight, but that he has become uncircumcised in heart, i.e., one whose heart is far from God and whose life is a contradiction of his membership of the covenant people. His demonstration of breaking Torah shows that he's not right with God. And now, though, though he's still a member of God's special people, to whom God is still faithful, this Jew stands in his human existence in a negative and no longer in a positive relation to God's purpose in history And he's outside that Israel within Israel, right? The remnant, which Paul refers in Romans 9, 6. I think that's a good way to interpret this passage, okay? Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term, Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for uh, the time that you have given to me, that you have allowed me to share my thoughts with the students. I thank you for this this uh, year that I am able to wrap up now these two studies, the um, Judaism v Christianity study that we wrapped up in this year 2022, and the Shema study that we wrapped up in this in this year as well. And I thank you that I'm uh, that you've given me the excitement um the uh ability the um um uh what should i say the responsibility to be able to begin a brand new study uh in 2023 brand new study so thank you lord for what lies ahead continue to go with us um as we continue to study your words um keep us safe um keep us blessed and uh, keep us filled with Your Holy Spirit. Keep us superpowered and in charge to do the work that only You can do through us, and so that You get the credit and all the glory and the praise goes to You, Lord. And we'll be con- we'll continue to um, look to You and rely upon You uh, for the Author and the Finisher of our faith. And we'll be con- we'll continue to bless You, Lord, uh, and recognize that it's Your name alone that that is to be praised and be blessed. And um, in Yeshua's name, we pray all these things. Amen.